0: I just realized how broken I was, you know, that this little this little ego-based creature was not me. And it's interesting, you know, I think, I think for me, this may be true for you, like every day I still, even though I've come a long, long way from 1997, every day that little creature still appears in some form or another. Welcome to Insert Human. This is a show that is not for everyone. It's for seekers, people like you, hopefully, who are searching for solutions to your problems, the world's problems, and everything in between. The conversations to come are gonna show you how finding the truth of our humanity is the magic key to solving pretty much anything. Between my monologues, my dialogues with brilliant guests, and your good questions, you're going to learn how to insert human into everything, and in doing so, realize a better life, and one day, a better world. Good day, everybody. And hello, Brian. Thank you so much for being on the show. We are thrilled to have you here. Uh, for the audience, I came about Brian serendipitously in that my wife and I are faithful readers of a publication called Mindful. And it's kind of about what you would expect it to be about. but there was a piece in it written by Brian and I'm gonna we're gonna talk about it later in the show that just I think I started crying sitting at the kitchen counter. This is only like two weeks ago or not even. And I just was so moved by it. I I said to my wife, Kate, I'm reaching out to him and see if he'd be willing to be on Insert Human. And lo and behold, he said yes. And so we are so grateful to have you with us today. Brian, by background, is a a businessman, I I suppose. A lot of uh, experience in the media technology, insurance and manufacturing industries. This is all prior to, I suppose, the mindful business. Today, he's the CEO of the company, which is both a media and training company called Mindful Communications. And as I mentioned, it has the magazine, and there's also a great website called mindful.org. In addition, he's a speaker. He's on a board of many companies. He's already he's written a book called Beautiful and Abundant, Building the World We Want, which I assume is on Amazon. Is that it, it is. It is? Yeah. And then the, the sort of funny last part is he and his wife, Caroline, raise organic grass-fed cattle, sheep and goats on a ranch in kansas so how how like dorothy did you end up in kansas i think there's anything wrong with kansas
1: we ended up here for the usual reason i was involved in a business that was based here we acquired a business that was based here and i came here you know for one of my short stints running a business and then um our kids are in elementary school we buy a ranch and pretty soon we have roots and this is our home but and uh very happy to have been here for uh, over 20 years
0: later in the show i'd love to i'd love to delve into the human experience of raising animals i mean i think most of us have had the experience of raising a a dog or a cat but i imagine it's a whole different context depth and dimension of being responsible for you know multiple creatures and all that but let's, let's let's talk about that a little bit later how did you get to Mindful? Like You were a businessman, clearly, first and foremost, but what was the path that you took to the Mindful communications business?
1: Yeah, i had always been in business, but I had the lucky uh, experience of having generally worked in businesses that I thought had a purpose that was important to me. I'd started out in the community newspaper business, which at the time was a very sort of purpose-driven thing to do. I was originally a journalist and then I ran community newspapers and that felt like an important thing to do. Um, my first job in the non-newspaper business was running a group of magazines that included magazines like Mother Earth News and the Utney Reader, a bunch of titles. Right. And so that became part of my vocation is businesses that, that serve some purpose in the world beyond just making money for a few people, mm-hmm. you know, it's more interesting that way. It's just more interesting to run that kind of business than it is a purely profit motive kind of business. That was that was years ago, right? That you had that sort of contextual
0: realization
1: of the importance. Yeah.
0: yeah just, I mean, I, I suppose yeah, today it's all about purpose, right? Everybody's talking about purpose, but this was maybe ahead of its time a little bit.
1: Well, whatever. I mean, you could say that because it is talked about more on the grand scale. But of course, you know, when I got into the media business in the 1970s, I was surrounded by people who were in business in order to do good in the world. (laughs) You know, it's always been a part of many people, maybe most people's motivation. I think that we've just sort of we're trying to institutionalize it now in new ways, trying to bring it, make it more visible and bring it into discussions of things like investment which is new but you know i don't think my motivations were that different than in everybody else's motivations it was really fun really interesting
0: right. to
1: run a business that made some money and had other purposes other more sort of uh, idealistic purposes
0: let me ask you i don't want to go off track I, I have a sense we could we could go off on a bunch of different avenues today but how you look at the way the world or at least a, percentage of the world looks at media today versus the role of media as the fourth estate or the, particularly the, the newspaper business. But, you know, I always viewed, well, how, how, how do you, how do you sort of uh, manage that
1: <laughs> transition? You know, that, yeah, you know, that's such a great question and such a thorny issue for us today. I think fundamental to it is the, is the issue of what the medium and its audience have in common. And when you, when you reference the Fourth Estate, I, I assume you mostly mean the news media. Yes. Yes. And the news media historically had one primary thing in common with its audience, and that was geographic. Historically, people read the local paper, they watched the local television, they listened to local radio and so as journalists our job was to try to tell the story the stories that they needed and wanted to hear in a way that was pretty neutral politically because we couldn't afford to be out of the extreme ends of the political spectrum because we were appealing to a group of people whose identity was geographically determined so you know if i ran the newspaper in uh fairmont minnesota and you know it's a almost evenly distributed conservative and liberal democrat and republican kind of place Mm -hmm. and really very much part of my responsibility to to report the news in a politically neutral way and that left one free to focus on what's really the truth here what's the bottom line here what's the impact on our community and our readership as the digital media have evolved, of course, the point of reference that the medium and its audience have in common has become political. Versus partisan. Graphic, right, right. Versus yeah. geographic. Right. And so all the metrics, of course, point the digital news media toward increasing levels of partisanship, of hmm. divisiveness, in, in essence, you know, the news media are mostly specializing in a particular spectrum point along that partisan spectrum, I think. And I think it's been enormously destructive to the fabric of society and then drives people farther out on their end of the spectrum because the news that they're consuming, the stories they're consuming, the information that they're, ta- that they're uh, gaining access to all harden their partisan positions.
0: And it's hard to, um, I'm actually in the middle of writing my second book, which is titled Technology is Dead, which is fundamentally about the state of the world, how technology has impacted the state of the world, and ultimately, what do we do about all that? Because there's clearly some dark consequences. There's some many positive consequences, and there's some dark consequences. And one of the, the most challenging things for me to get my head around is how do you bridge that partisan divide you know how to, given the way it all "quote unquote" works today, how do we how do we find our way back to compromise and to shared paths, shared intentions? And I, I isn't
1: I, it? It's it's a mind boggling challenge, and possibly an existential challenge for our species. Yeah, I agree with that. I totally. You know you. we we don't have any problems that can be solved on a strictly local level or solved in a way that is not extremely inclusive of diverse people and so we're going to have to tackle our problems with more collaboration and the path to collaboration you know probably includes compassion right and that's not something that we've spent very much time working to develop i think
0: well if we can we can talk about that for a little bit so for the audience i encourage you i encourage you to subscribe to mindful and i encourage you to read um i guess was the june issue was it recently that's right Uh, yeah so Brian, and I may, uh, I may get a little teary. Brian wrote a piece titled Healing in a Deep Ocean of Grief. And uh, this is what I read at the kitchen counter two weeks ago and started crying. And the reason why I started crying is because it's a story of the loss of his, his, he and his wife's child son. And and it's a it's a sad story, it's a heartbreaking story, but it's also, I think, and an, for me, it was sort of an awakening story um, specifically to this idea of of compassion and i'd love for you to share as much of that story as you want but and particularly i'd love i'd love to hear how how you now what you learned about the journey to compassion or how to
1: realize more compassion yeah um thank you for the kind words and for drawing attention to the story um you know i think he Even before our son Noah died um, in 2013, I had gotten interested in compassion for the reason we were talking about a second ago, which just was that it seemed to me a lot of our social and particularly environmental problems weren't going to be solved without new levels of collaboration and new levels of understanding and compassion between people. Um, And so I had tried to write about that. And I'd found very much my disappointment that I didn't really know enough about compassion to write about it. I discovered that I wasn't good enough at it uh, to write about it. I didn't really understand how, what it was, which is a rather disappointing discovery about oneself. Right. <clears throat> but, you know, I. Uh, I mean, in, but Brian, in your defense, I think a lot a lot
0: of the, this is kind of what we were talking about before we started recording. A lot of, a lot of what we feel we don't necessarily understand. A lot of the capacities we have, we don't necessarily work at. I think there's a lot of our existence that we take, we either take for granted or we simply don't delve into. And I, so I think in, in you know, I think you, in your defense. I think I would say the majority of us don't actually understand that word, really.
1: Yeah, yeah I, I was. I didn't mean to indicate that I was special in my lack of understanding. Okay. Okay, <laughs> only, that, only that I set out to write about it and I discovered my lack of understanding. Okay. Um, and so I, I, I started looking for ways of, you know, forms of practice that would improve my compassionate skills. Than my god-given capacity for compassion and that led me to um, i'd been a meditator quote unquote you know really ever since childhood but i hadn't taken it seriously enough i think and you know what i discovered was there are very few practices there are very few disciplines that are demonstrated to improve our capacity for empathy and compassion but meditation is that. Mm. And so I, you know, I got into it. And um, Noah died in this time frame, And, you know, probably one of the reasons I was looking for these tools was that he had been uh, an addict, and in pain and in crisis for five or six years by then. Mm-hmm. And so his death was um, traumatic. But we've been through a lot of traumatic experiences leading up to it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I found that my friends who taught meditation, the resources I found to, to strengthen my meditation practice, deepen my meditation practice, were useful to me in both ways, both in improving my, I thought to improve my empathy and compassion for other people, but also to help me navigate a very difficult time um, to deal with a new level of grief that I would not previously experienced. Mm -hmm. And so through that interest in those practices, eventually um, I, you know, had made friends with the people who started Mindful and got involved with it because it became a central interest in my life. Mm -hmm. Mm
0: -hmm. In your exploration of it the understanding of it one of the things i do as a way to try to understand something is i look to the opposite Uh (laughs) uh-huh yeah so like i did a i did a talk on integrity a while back and it's a word i think a lot about and you know one way i thought about it was well what's the opposite of integrity And um, I, I, I can make an inappropriate remark right now about a, a recent president, but I'm not going to. Um, <laughs> but as you thought about, as you started exploring what it is and how it is and how you, how you, how you, how you engage with it and how you exhibit it. And did you contemplate what the opposite is? Um, or could you now, like, could you,
1: is and maybe there's no answer to that question. I, I, well, you know, I think it's, I I think the opposite of compassion is, in a lot of ways, fear. Hmm. I think the thing that opposes compassion is fear. The thing that generates such strong resistance to it. Um, and you know, in another, from another point of reference, the ego is pretty uncompassionate. Yeah. Everything that drives us to want to feel special and different and apart, you know, is a force that resists true compassionate feeling. Um, but the the blow, you know, it's sort of a miraculous thing when you when you experience a big loss and you experience big grief, and you're literally you know you're emotionally overwhelmed by it. You lose your resistance to all the little griefs. Mm. You know grief isn't an unnatural state for a person to exist in and a lot of I know you talk often about vulnerability you talk often about openness. And I, and I admire the conversations that you Chris have been responsible for carrying in this i think one of the things that was the most startling discovery for me is that i realized i'd always been in a state of grief and that in fact everybody i knew lived in a state of grief because we're human beings mm-hmm. and we idealize we idealize relationships life our our self-image there's all this stuff that we our futures, we, our futures most certainly and all that idealization creates this terrible sense of loss, because of course, the world doesn't conform. Want okay. It doesn't conform to that.
0: No.
1: And so we go around that way. And I was startled to realize that the warmth and the softness I felt toward other people in the context of my deepest grief was something that I kind of wanted to hang on to.
0: Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, letting, it's it's funny. Uh, you'll think this is a non sequitur, but I was speaking yesterday with somebody about the use of psychedelics That's on right. mental illness. And the, I don't know, I've read some of the Michael Pollan work. And, and I went to this place of, you know, I have this, again, most of my theories are completely unsubstantiated, just one person's observations. But the theory is that the majority of our life we live in two dimensions and those dimensions are very functional, very primal, basic dimensions and that there's this third dimension which actually carries what is really important but the first two tend to dominate and so the silver lining of dark, dark moments is that it allows you to embrace the third dimension and let go of the other two dimensions. All the noise, all the clutter, all the little, the little ego-based, niggly things that are happening all the time. And you, you all, for a moment, you have purity of of understanding, purity of sight. And I think that we, I was talking to this this guy yesterday, Jesse Jesse Masters, a friend of mine, about psychedelics potentially having that same impact that they they pull you out of the sort of two normal dimensions and you end up in this place where you, you are released in a way from a lot of the trappings and burden and can see things clearly. Again, that's maybe a non sequitur,
1: but I don't know. I don't think it's a non sequitur at all. I think it's, it's, you know, you've, you've pointed out a very powerful parallel between the experience of grief and the experience of, of the psychedelic trip. And that is that, your underlying nature is um what's the right word for it your underlying nature is scrambled to the extent it needs to be so you can become interested in things outside yourself Hmm. You, you lose preoccupation with your various narratives about identity and all the rest of that stuff right um and so i think you know i think there's a very powerful parallel there between the psychedelic experience and other experiences that diminish the ego and open us up to our connections right
0: what better really better said well said
1: yeah yeah
0: i guess the question that um, that sets up is and this is a, a very specific question for you is the, the capacity to maintain that clarity. You know, you, you mentioned this sort of feeling able to be softer and warmer. And it's like, you know, we were talking earlier about my losses. Uh, I lost my dad and my brother as, as a child and, and in fairly sh- like two years apart. And from those losses, you realize things and you realize a way you want to be. And, you know, and then over time, it feels as if you lose that clarity. And then you need another loss to remind you, you know, <laughs> you know and, and are, there, are there, have you as, as somebody as, as, as sort of grounded and clear as you are, were, were you able to find
1: ways to hold on to what you had gained from such a profound loss? It's a daily practice. I mean, it's something that I work at. No, I don't, I'm not perpetually Warm and compassionate. Um, I do find that meditation practice is one of the more effective tools I have for maintaining a more open and vulnerable, friendlier, kinder, more loving perspective on the world. And part of the reason for that, I think is you know, in meditation, one's given the chance to look at one's thoughts, relatively more objectively and one finds one's old ego showing up all the time over and over again you know you if you want to know how much of an amateur amateur you are at being uh, a good and human being uh, an enlightened human being sit quietly with yourself for an hour and you know your your mind generates all the evidence you need to conclude that indeed you're, you're another human being and you share the weaknesses you okay. share you share what other you share what you see around you you know and so getting to know one's own mind is very helpful obviously in trying to maintain a perspective on the world i think that's one of the more helpful things and you know you asked about when we got into the conversation you asked about where am i a rancher i will say that the the daily practice of being responsible for caring for and in fact in a way loving creatures and then holding the intention to use them as food, is a very interesting practice in accepting the, if you will, harsh realities of existence, of biological existence. And nobody is innocent, you know? Every life depends on the loss of other lives. No matter what sort of life you are, And being engaged with that in this kind of direct and emotional way also, I think, helps me to some degree or another maintain my openness toward other human beings and the various griefs that they're experiencing in the various ways in which they do harm or experience harm.
0: Right. Tell me a little bit about the book that you wrote, um, Beautiful and Abundant, Building the World We Want. Because I'm, as I as I mentioned in my book that I'm writing, I have to. I'm in the, the last section of the book where I'm supposed to be writing a prescription for the world we want. So maybe you can give me some tips.
1: <laughs> well, what's the book? You know, about? The basic theme of that book wasn't that it wasn't very complicated at all. The, the idea was that if you if you want to achieve something, you better visualize it, and you better visualize it continually over and over again. Because we tend to realize the things that are uh, on which we to which we pay attention or we tend to realize the things that we visualize. Right. And so, you know, it's my feeling working in uh, the the realm of sustainability for decades. It was my feeling that we were using all of our energy to focus on and describe the obstacles to real sustainability, to a healthy environment, to beautiful futures for our grandchildren. And I wondered if we shouldn't be spending more time focusing on what we want the world to look like in 50 or a hundred years. What are the components that we should be cultivating so that that's a world where we want our grandchildren to live? And so that's basically what the book's about. I had a friend, I have a friend who, who taught me, he was a mountain bike racer and he taught me about the destination fixation they so in in speed sports particularly those that go downhill they teach you to focus on where you want to be and to focus your attention away from the stump the hole the rut don't focus on things with which you might collide forcefully because you will go where your mind is focused oh interesting and so that was kind of a metaphor for what that book was about.
0: Well, it's coincidentally, I literally am working on the first chapter of the final section, which as I said is meant to be a, not a prescription, but a framework for how to, how to fix what ails us. And the first chapter is all about the importance of, of the having the end in mind that and what I call intentionality. And it's an ex, it starts out with an exploration of how society, how modern society has approached the definition of human progress. And the alarming thing about it is the majority of our, the last 100, 200 years, progress was defined simply as longevity.
1: Oh, yeah, that's a very, that's, that's a great observation. I hadn't thought of that.
0: But, but it's, I mean, I'm saying what you're, what you're saying in the book, which is, we have to be more aware, conscious. And even creative about what constitutes our our individual and collective progress. What what does the what does the finish line? Not that there is one. Look like.
1: Well, and you know, and we focused our attention away from things like kindness and compassion. In fact, we've become rather expert at educating people, particularly in our graduate schools of business, to separate notions. Hmm. Of compassion, notions of well-being, personal issues—keep that all out of our workplace, where we spend the vast majority of our waking lives. Exclude all of that from the place where most of our effort is being expended. And gosh, how harmful might that be in well, the long run? Right? Devastatingly harmful. I was actually in my my prior
0: life. I I worked at an institute of higher education. shall go nameless and i was could i was castigated the verbatim statement was chris personal development and professional development have nothing to do with each other
1: yeah (laughs) well i went to graduate school at the same unnamed (laughs) uh, institution and Uh uh, yes that was part of the curriculum no doubt about it uh, crazy so tell me a little bit about mindful so when did you take over as ceo uh let's see uh two and a half years ago so yeah and and and, i mean i can imagine
0: what drew you to it or you know but i'd love to hear about the, the the vision for the for the business and what you're trying to do as you know and and i can
1: imagine but again i don't necessarily know well you know um i discovered in the practices of mindfulness as we were talking earlier the best technology for compassion that i had discovered and i really consider mindfulness mindful meditation practices to be a kind of technology for for human development oh interesting i love that that's i love that and i was looking you know years ago i set out years ago looking for uh technology to improve my own capacities for compassion kindness. And um so, you know, when I connected with mindful, it was from my perspective the most important work I could do. And I feel that way still. That's spreading and proliferating true well-grounded practices of mindfulness is seems important to me. Yeah. Yeah. You know, another benefit of course is that Uh, the people I work with are extraordinary. I, you know, I get to hang out with, um, collaborators and colleagues who are working very hard to be as kind, as compassionate, as aware as they can be. Um, and the practices themselves. And they kind of force you to to do this without any sense of, of particular sense of achievement, because with the the awareness comes a sense, a very real sense of how limited our capacities are, how much beginners we all are mm-hmm. when we pursue compassion and kindness and awareness.
0: Would you Would you say that's that's your definition of mindfulness i mean i'm sure there's some people on listening to the show right now that are
1: actually asking that question what what does that actually mean is that yeah sure well when i say mindfulness what i mean is an awareness of how our own mind is functioning Hmm. and by that i mean where do your thoughts and emotions arise where do they come from what's their real meaning you know, and I think what people can discover through as they learn more about that is that a lot of our thoughts ar- arise from very self-centered places Oh yeah. that and they instigate emotions that are destructive to both us and those around us. Right, right, right. And the m- better we understand that, the better our chances of intervening. I think. Right. Yeah. And so you know, it's that's not particularly mystical or romantic, but I think it's important.
0: Yeah, I mean, it, it, it harkens back to something you said earlier and a conversation I had with a a good friend of mine years ago, which was really about. She was the one that introduced me to the idea of ego as being an kind of an alternative you inside you and even the idea that ego has a personality so in my case my ego is a as a little boy named jared and as i go through my daily life there's a conversation that tends to go on between chris and jared Mm, about what's happening to me and what i want and what i need and it's it's um it's almost as if every day is a negotiation Uh (laughs) uh-huh Uh about which voice is going to dominate in that Uh particular moment and that particular decision.
1: Oh, I had a very, very similar realization years ago. I realized that I had become so expert at feigning confidence (laughs) that I had come to believe in myself as a confident person. And yet there was still a little little boy who was part of my being who understood himself to be vulnerable and uncertain. Yeah. And that little boy made up a lot of who I really was. And okay. so the negotiation then becomes apparent when you realize that, and it's, it's um, well, it's intriguing, isn't it, how we can, and I, I believe a lot of folks share that experience. I, I think that's, I
0: wasn't gonna say universal, but it's it's many of us, I think, are are exactly or have been exactly there. It reminds me there was a Oliver Wendell Holmes once said, "Who you are must come before what you do." And I, when I read that quote back in nineteen ninety seven or something, my reaction was, "I have no idea who I am." And what I did was basically, I was that little boy Jared in a in a suit of armor called business, uh-huh. and that was my identity. Yeah. You know, Jared was making all the decisions and what protected me was this thing called business. huh. And I luckily in 1997, I realized I I don't think that that's the way I want to do this. I didn't know how to how to figure out the who I actually was part. But I knew that I didn't want to didn't want to be that other that other that other entity, you know.
1: Yeah, and was there an event in your life that precipitated that new understanding? Um,
0: There were actually like two or three things that happened over six months. Um, Nothing significant. One is I went to a psychic for the first time and I'd always sort of poo-pooed that sort of thing. And the, the person kept asking me how I felt using the feel verb. And I kept responding, I think, <laughs> and he he got mad at me, like literally mad at me <laughs> that I don't wanna know what you think, I wanna know what you feel. <laughs> and I thought to myself, I have no idea what he's talking about, uh-huh. I have no idea what he's talking about. Uh-huh. And um, and then the other one was not surely thereafter, my now ex-wife and I had a cocktail party and I realized the next day that the entire night I had avoided intimate conversation with anybody uh, yeah so all i done all night was pour wine and make sure everybody you know got a little buzz on and just to avoid having to actually interact with people even though i was running a company and i was you know very successful and i just realized like i don't know who i am i'm i'm clearly afraid of knowing who i am or exposing who i am to other people um and i have i want to i want to do something about that and and That ended up being a 10 year journey Mm. of, um, you know, first therapy two or three times a week. And I started reading everything I got my hands on. Meditating was big, big part of it. I just realized how broken I was, you know, that this little this little ego based creature was not me. And it's interesting, you know, I think. I think for me, this may be true for you, like every day, I still, even though I've come a long, long way from 1997, every day that little creature still appears in some form or another, Uh huh.
1: Yeah, me too, for me too. And do you, does it ever occur to you that there's something that Jared knows that you're still working to learn or some things that Jared knows that you're, because in my own case, the uncertainty that my little boy self lived in has come to feel much more realistic oh yeah and in a way constructive than the certainty with which i had armored myself you know when you talk about the armor of business or armor in business certainly (laughs) there's that word but certainty is a is, was part of my product, you know, it was part of my identity. Right.
0: Com- well, you said confidence, you know, confidence is, is affecting
1: cert- certainty, right? Like... In a lot of ways. And I found it a really intriguing exercise to try to learn how to be decisive in a state of uncertainty. Oh, interesting. I have a teacher who says that certainty is aggression. Then, anytime, Ow. right? Yeah. I mean, Certainty I'm not, I, I, I'm saying, wow, because yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so as I started trying to practice uncertainty, I discovered that, gosh, had an impact all over my life. And, you know, one of the big ways in business is I still have to be decisive, but now I have to be decisive in this vulnerable, uncertain way. Yeah. And that's been an interesting challenge.
0: Well, and I would imagine the derivative effect of that to the organization is is profound right? because it it i'm assuming it or projecting that it creates an environment of it's okay to be to not be absolutely confident or not be absolutely certain which then forces openness across the board which then enables a level of connection that you wouldn't have achieved with the other in the other modality or something like that. I've, i, I got to believe the derivative impact is profound culturally for you trying to get to that.
1: Yeah, it has. It definitely has all those implications. And when we when we train people in businesses as part of our work, we describe that as a benefit. That you know, in order to give people the freedom to fail, which we've understood for some time is important to taking risk and innovating. But in order to give people that you have to show them that you're prepared to fail. And that means making decisions with the open um, realization that you may be wrong. Right. You might even be wrong about your own motivations right so one of the things you know that's very hard i find to practice is to say i think we should do this i see the situation in this way but here's the ways in which i might also be deluded right in my assessment right and if y'all need to call me out now let's do it before i screw up in this way yeah yeah i think that's a healthy dialogue but not that easy. It's not that easy to get comfortable with it.
0: Well, I mean, for me, it's like two things. One is that there's a, bun, as you said, there's a vulnerability. And the other is knowing thyself. Like the only way you can articulate where your biases might be is to know where your biases might be. You know, and I think a lot of people, and particularly in, in business, you know, at least my age, I was taught the first mark of leadership is to never show vulnerability of course you know my father was a four-star <laughs> admiral in the united states navy like <laughs> i grew up with <laughs> that right but the other one i think is even harder which is knowing thyself well enough to understand how how one might be looking at a situation and maybe not a purely objective uh, fashion so i'm mindful of the time i'm i'm sad this went so quickly <laughs> You know, when we first started talking, you said you listen to the show, which I'm really grateful for that, and I'm certainly grateful for you being on it. Um, but you mentioned that you like how I'm approaching it all, and I think you used the word practical, because I am after trying to help people, you know, navigate their way through this thing called life. And often I will conclude by asking my guests, you know, if there are a couple of things that you would you want to share. With the people listening, to help them, as I said, find their way through the woods, to help them realize perhaps a more open um, and grounded and um, call it meaningful life, a more mindful life. You mentioned meditation more than once, so you know obviously that's that's got to be or not got to be, but sh- maybe should be part of everybody's mix. I certainly subscribe to that. Are there other things that you would advise, you know, if I'm, if, if I'm your pal and I'm struggling in some way, like. either either techniques or. Uh, things that could read or just. Any and if not, that's fine, totally fine. But if there are a couple of things that come to mind that help those that are.
1: Yeah, it's such a that's such a lovely and open ended way to, you know, to ask the question. Maybe rather than trying to give any final prescription, I would say that, you know, what I've been working on most recently, writing about most recently, is my discovery of how much power I was giving to the negative forces in my life by resisting them. Mm -hmm. You know, um, all my little, everyone lives in a state of grief. It's That's human. That's the human situation. The condition, right? The condition. We idealize. Our idealized world does not exist. We live in a state of mourning for the idealized world that we created in our minds. And in our efforts to realize that idealized world and to resist the real world, we expend enormous energy, and we give the grief kind of a lot of power. Hmm. We, we give the negative a lot of power by resisting it with so much energy and time. And so, you know, part of my current practice that I suspect I'll be literally practicing at for the rest of my life is to acknowledge that grief and name it for what it is, large or small, a sense of loss that goes with being human. Because I find when I set it in that context, that my mind is then freed to have, have its experience, its true experience, its experience in the moment without being preoccupied by the struggle against reality, which I'm afraid I've spent, you know, a very large percentage of my life doing it's
0: almost as if we fight the things we should not fight and we, we embrace the things we should not embrace. It's like, like You know, like, I, I mean, I, in, a, in a way, maybe it's just all, it's all, it's just letting go.
1: Well, and, and to be fair, in a society that idolizes personal achievement as ours does, in a society that projects these idealized images of human bodies. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Idealized notion of human nature that's getting projected on all of our screens all the time. In that context, I think everyone can be forgiven for experiencing deep grief about failing to conform to those images, to those notions of the human condition. Really? But, you know, by, in a way, embracing the frailty, we all share, right, we get the opportunity to, to love each other better, but more importantly, to love ourselves. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's a wonderful way to
0: conclude that that I think, for me, part of the mindfulness proposition is a big part of it is learning to love myself, you know, the, the person in 1997 not only did not know himself, but part of the reason why I didn't know myself is because I didn't love myself. And, and I really, do, I do believe that loving thyself is the ultimate liberator. And it opens up so many other aspects of one's existence. And it can be achieved. I mean, I think I'm I'm walking, talking evidence of somebody who successfully uh, undertook that journey. I want to ask, this is like a, a bit of a funny way to end, but you mentioned training. So so Mindful does corporate training or what, what, what exactly do you guys do?
1: That's right. we you know we publish a magazine and we we produce courses by great teachers that anybody can take. And we train in the corporate setting. We have coaches and curricula for the workplace. So we have big corporate clients around the world.
0: Hmm. So so
1: all available on mindful.org or is that, is that a different site or yeah, you'll see, you can see it all there. The, the training product is called LifeXT by Mindful. And so it's visible on the Mindful site, but also has its own website. Okay.
0: So my last question, I promise it triggers for me, the COVID thing and how there's this conversation going on about the future of work and how there's more conversation going on about more employees wanting more and wanting to work in an environment that is more purpose-driven, that is more whole human i just love to hear your, you know, reaction to that. It it must play to the training work that you do, or do you think that's a, I don't know, a hot trend? Do you think that's, what, what do you think's going on there or will go on there?
1: I hope that people will increasingly resist forms of employment that deprive them for the opportunity of reflection, for the opportunity of, of doing good things for other people, for the opportunity of feeling that their work has purpose in the world. I hope people will increasingly resist work that calls on them to make sacrifices like that. Yeah. But that's more for the species, you know, and what humanity means to the universe than it is about you know my own personal business interests right um i'm grateful that you know that i get to do this work and i'm conscious of what a privilege that is and i really hope that we would that that we are moving toward a place where we Feel we need to accord similar privileges to people in all lines of work. That their work is meaningful. That it includes the opportunity to do good and to treat other people in kind, loving, and respectful ways. That should all be baked in to right. the definition of success, shouldn't it? Yeah, really, absolutely, yeah. At a, at a macro, you know, what is human progress
0: level, and then an individual, what is one's life like? It, to me it, it's that third dimension idea which is that's where the the meaning lives that's where the value lives um, but I don't think societally we've done a great job of unlocking that helping people unlock that dimension at all and I think that's yeah, that's a big opportunity and I think mindful magazine and the company is trying to trying to do that in its way and I, I commend you for that and last thing is you said the word privilege and I've been privileged to have you on the show and to and the old terminology to make your acquaintance. I, I I'm thrilled that you would be willing to do this. And my wife was like, you you were like, you did what? You 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 reached out to that guy? <laughs> I'm like, well, nothing ventured, <laughs> nothing gained. So thank you, Brian. It was truly an honor. And I hope we stay connected. And by the way, you guys should start. it Do you have a podcast? Does Mindful have a podcast?
1: We do. Yeah, that's also at the website. And yeah, but I'm uh, I remain a very particular and specific fan of yours. Oh, well, thank you. Thank what's, you. What's the name of yours, though? What's the what's the I think it's called the Mindful Podcast.
0: The Mindful. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Well, listen. Thank you again, and uh, I'd love to have you back on the show in a few months of UBF for it, just to check in and 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 see how life is going. It's, That'd be wonderful. I think we uh, let's let's stay friends. Okay. Thanks very much. Thank okay. you. Thanks for listening today. If you're in search of more opportunities to realize positive change in your life or work, and you find what I have to say helpful. You can always subscribe to my show, check out one of my new salons that are weekly virtual gatherings of like-minded folks. You can read some of my writings or just listen to one of the talks that I've given around the world over the last couple of years. And you can do it all at chriscolbert.com. While you're there, make sure to sign up for my ongoing email updates. When you do, you'll receive a free copy of the first chapter of my about-to-be-published book, Technology is Dead. Again, it's all available at chriscolbert.com. Thanks again for listening today, and I look forward to connecting more in the days ahead.